All right, we are back. Had a good all-star break, some good travel, then some bad travel as my attempt to drive back from Salt Lake City on Friday left me with my car in Reno and a flight from Reno to Oakland. So got to go get my car at the Reno airport at some point, but needed to get back because we were doing the strategy stream yesterday. And so now we are ready for a 15 and 60. It's been quite some time here and we normally would be doing the East, but because there are a lot of great West games and also I saw one in person I really wanted to talk about on Thursday, we're going to go West this week. Uh, we'll get back to the East. And, and what I saw in person that i don't really want to talk about but we will talk about in warriors rockets um <laughs> but let's start with i mean so part of the fun of the all-star break is you get to see these teams hopefully closer to assembled and you actually ended up kind of stumbling into one of the better games that we've seen in these last few days and that's oklahoma city against utah i'll start with the stats on the oklahoma city thunder they are 28 and 31 on the season five and seven since the last 15 and 60 plus one net rating which is 12th in the league i believe there's something like fifth in the NBA since December 1st, which is striking. 15th in offense, 11th in defense. We've talked about that at times. Raptor and Elo, actually a very big divergence, more in terms of the seeding rather than the number of games. Raptor projects the Thunder will win 37 and Elo 40, and that has a huge difference in their play off odds. Raptor 8%, Elo 43%. Yeah, 8% seems too low with Raptor, given where all these other teams are. And I think you just, maybe they, they are not adequately accounting for possible variation when you're only three games out. Yeah, there are a lot of teams, but those teams could kind of shake out in just about any order. But in any event, the Thunder had been playing extremely well. Their offense had been top 10 for the last few weeks as well. And we talked about this with Charlie Rolfe from the, the NBA, that the Thunder are one of the top teams in the league at setting screens with players other than their centers. A lot of times they don't even really play a center. They don't really have a traditional pick and roll center on their roster. Mike Muscala is gone now. They start Jalen Williams. Then they play Dario Saric, a backup center in this game. They close a lot with Kenrich Williams as well, playing some center. But you still need a way to create motion and create confusion within the defense and so having guys like say an Isaiah Joe has been a fantastic shooter for them this year set screens slip out of it just and Shea Gilgis Alexander and Josh Giddy are such good passers and Shea is so shifty that he's able to take advantage of, of even a momentary amount of confusion so pregame I, I got a chance to ask both coaches who were feeling quite loquacious it was nice right at the it seemed like everyone got their batteries recharged including uh Mark Dignall and Will Hardy so I, I asked first Dagnalt and then Will Hardy about that thunder habit of setting screens with different players uh, what the advantages of it are and why it's difficult to guard coach you guys are at the top of the league and screens set by non-bigs can you talk about how that strategy evolved and, and why that's worked so well for you um I mean it's it's a byproduct of our circumstances of our personnel uh we're always looking for ways to you know generate advantages I think some of the best teams in the league find competitive differences you know the league can be very uh generic in some ways some of that's you know warranted like analytics has done that to a degree I think that's why the offenses are all up because teams are kind of all guided by the same north star analytically but if you look at teams like uh you know 
that Golden State stands out, you know, the, the dominance that they've had over a long period of time. Some of that is that their style of play is very different. So you go through the season and you play kind of a regular rhythm of styles, and then all of a sudden you play them, and it's like a totally different uh, thing, and you have to adjust to that, and it's difficult when you play against it. And so part of what we're doing is trying to look at the guys we have, what their strengths are, uh, and be a little bit different and be a little bit of a special preparation for our opponents. That's just one of the elements that we've, we've tried to leverage into it. And now Will Hardy on guarding those actions. Coach, building on, on Nick's question, uh, OKC is, a, I think, in the top few teams in setting screens with players other than the center. What are the keys to guarding those actions? Yeah, it takes a lot of communication because you have a lot of players guarding ball screens that aren't used to doing that. Um, it's something that we're seeing more and more in the league. Obviously, OKC is one of the top ones. Um, you know, one, because... They don't have many centers of that feel like when they play. Uh, a lot of very versatile perimeter guys. Uh, but it, it, it tests your communication because they, they do such a good job of mixing up who the screener is so you don't really get a rhythm defensively in terms of who's doing what communicating. Um, it's something we talked a lot about this morning. And <clears throat> it tests your focus. Um, there's a lot of teams in the league that you know which players are going to set the majority of the screen. And so those matchups are used to being the, the primary communicator defensively. And Oklahoma City does such a good job of mixing up who that screener is that um, it puts a lot of pressure on your, your mental focus. So um, it's going to be a, a great night for us in terms of you know evaluating our team's understanding of you know, what it takes to communicate for 48 minutes. Um, I look forward to it. So having discussed that with them pregame, I was very interested to see how the Utah Jazz would defend. And I think... Uh, Wob called it bounce day because this is one of the few times when guys come back and have had three days off for both teams. He said opening night and the first game of the first round of the playoffs are the other ones like that where you can really see how much energy teams have. We saw that throughout the league on Thursday. There were some really good games. But the other thing about it is that you actually have time to prepare for an opponent in a way that you might not. Now, most teams didn't get back until Wednesday, but they probably had a, a full practice, the coaching staff because all coaches are insane probably uh, had more time to prepare than normal so I, I thought Utah actually did a really nice job of guarding some of those OKC actions I would also say OKC wasn't quite as random about it uh, particularly towards the end of the game as you might have normally expected them to be but there were a few miscommunications with this Utah team and they also had some interesting strategies to guard those plays they tried to keep Walker Kessler of course out of the action and then particularly when Shea Gildas Alexander was going off late in the game they would put two on the ball force Gilgis Alexander to throw it to the roll man but then they had Walker Kessler coming over on the back line and he was able to disrupt reasonably well what the Thunder wanted to do well and I and, think uh, yeah. when, you, when you're talking about how the Jazz defended it something else I want to bring up is their personnel and so Utah now that the trade deadline is before the all-star break this can be an opportunity to evaluate to reassess and so where the Jazz are right now is they of course traded Mike Conley for Russell Westbrook who they then waived and 
also sent out all these other rotation players, including Jared Vanderbilt and Malik Beasley. So they're starting five in this game, Kessler, Markin, and Olenek. So that's Markin functionally playing the three. He's done that when they've been, when their front court's been full strength, they've done that fairly frequently. But then the backcourt of Jordan Clarkson and Taylor Horton Tucker. So they're starting THT as the other guard, however with, you want to do With Sexton out with the, the hamstring the Hamstring issue. So, and maybe they'll still bring Sexton off the bench. We'll have to see. And then another, oh yeah, guy for this. I mean, because also he wasn't on the Jazz until recently. Chris Dunn played a part in the rotation and still limited on offense, but he gets into guys defensively. Yeah, he does. And he definitely had it really against that that defense against anybody except for Shea goes Alexander. I thought in the first half, Shea was really abusing Ochai Abaji, who was still coming off the bench, interestingly enough. I mean, some of these these lineups for the Jazz are kind of interesting, although they kind of went to the real group in the fourth quarter when they made their comeback. They were down 10 uh, for most of the second half in this one. And then Dunn tried to pressure up, uh, and Shea goes Alexander loves that because he's just so herky-jerky, so good at feeling contact, spinning off guys we've talked about his reactive handle before and so he was able to really beat Dunn in a way that you don't see very often Dunn also he's got a little bit of a size of it I thought Shea also the another thing that stuck out to me about his game was just how strong he is now like he actually is able to overpower guys a little bit and use his size I mean he's still he's never going to be the thickest guy in the world but he clearly has improved his core strength and he's able to use that to get it into floater range of course draw fouls he was uh, 15 and 19 although he was only five of nine in the second half and he missed some big free throws uh, that could have got the thunder this win late um I think the other thing we got to talk about though, I mean, you mentioned this jazz rotation, particularly without Colin Sexton, although even Sexton is not, you know, a big three-point shooter off the dribble, is just how limited this team shooting is now in the backcourt. And as they were 13 of 48 in this game, Markinen's been in a slump from three as well, though he hit a couple of big ones late. But wait, on that on that front, yeah. Larry Markinen was 12 of 16 on twos, 10 of 10 from the line, and three of 12 from three on yeah. his way to 43 yeah i mean he had a, an awesome guy <laughs> kendrick williams was uh, one of the interviewees after the game and one of the reporters was like yeah 40 he had 43 points you know what are some of the challenges He's like oh we had 43 i guess we got to do a better job he had no idea that he had scored uh, 43 points and and kendrick was one of the guys guarding marketing late interestingly he actually got taken out by dignald and dignald uh not in a bad way but he definitely referenced that uh, kendrick williams like could have done better helping on some of these utah drives and that the penetration they allowed is part of why they gave a bunch of off- offensive rebounds late as well. But uh, yeah, Mark and it was fantastic. But I, I think before we talk about his fourth quarter in overtime where he was awesome and this Utah offense is just going to really struggle because their backcourt is so limited from a shooting perspective. 13 to 48 overall from three is a problem. We brought up Mark and also off the bench. Fontecchio 0 for 5 from 3, Dunn 0, 1 for 4, Abaji was okay with 3 for 8, and I mean, but you have all these players that you actively don't have to guard, like Horton Tucker, it's been a challenge for him, like the theory of the case with Horton Tucker, that I know there were people who were more optimistic in his early Lakers tenure, but if you, you have to be really, really good on ball if you're going to be this poor of a shooter, and 
when they this this Jazz team, they have lots of capable offensive players, but you need somebody who can generate those advantages with regularity. They have more play more advantage like play finishers than they do advantage creators. And you can see I I, I can, I'll bring this up when we talk about the Houston Rockets later on, how that it just diminishes your shot quality so dramatically because the teams don't have to adjust and react. No, it's it's true, right? and I mean, whether it was Chris Dunn who was who was aggressive taking threes, kind of got this set shot three now that'll take more in spot up situations. Horton Tucker was one out of six, but like neither of those guys can shoot at all. And then when you throw in that they're going to be playing a center pretty much all the time as well, Rudy Gay went out. Uh, I think it was with a facial fracture early in this game, might have been a broken nose, and so then they had to play Juan Toscano Anderson as well, another guy who just can't shoot the ball at all. He's also on the Jazz, by the way. He was in that trade, uh, mm-hmm. Damian. Jones plays for the Utah Jazz now. <laughs> he was also well, in the the Lakers speak, trade. Speaking of that, at one point I was theorizing during the break that the Warriors could use their last roster spot on Juan Toscano Anderson if he got bought out. Juan Toscano Anderson playing for the Utah Jazz. So they just don't have a lot of shooting, and they also seem, particularly with Sexton out, that they like their bigs a little bit more. That meant Markin played a lot more of the three. I thought it was telling that when they made their comeback, they actually had Markin playing at the four next to Kessler. And, and to me, their two best players in the backcourt are Clarkson and Abaji. But it seems like Will Hardy is of the belief, hey, we need Horton Tucker or Dunn out there. He's on a 10-day, and he played well. He also had a, a really nice game against the Spurs uh, as they came back against them on, on Saturday. But it seems like he really does not want to play Jordan Clarkson at point guard, even though Clarkson has been a better passer this year. Uh, it seems like they still want to play him at shooting guard. But to me, their best alignment now would be Abaji and Clarkson. Clarkson together in the background. It also is just interesting to me that with them being so limited in terms of shooting that Abaji only plays 22 minutes in this game. Um, they play him some at the three. He was in and out of the lineup late, mostly as a defensive replacement. So maybe this is kind of a, a little bit of tough love for Abaji that he's, he's got to get better defensively, execute a little bit better. They don't want to just hand him a ton of minutes, even though he was a guy who was talked about as being not totally untouchable, but one of the guys they really didn't want to potentially move at the deadline uh walker cats started a really interesting game uh, i despite the fact that he blocked a bunch of shots early my observation about him i mean we know his incredible shot blocking talent is that he could potentially be even better i mean he played 37 minutes in this game that wouldn't shock me if that was a, a career high obviously it went into ot and he had seven block shots uh including some huge ones late that we'll talk about but uh also hit his first three he was apparently badgered. yeah they ran a corner a, a play for him to set a screen and then pop out to the corner and hit a left corner three i think he hit one in like the rookie sophomore game or something like that and so will hardy said yes the play was for him Kessler badgered him to run that first play for him. He did hit a corner three. He took some at Auburn, never made him. I, I still don't think that's going to be a big part of Kessler's game. But the thing that stuck out to me is that if he can just get a little bit stronger and in a little bit better of shape, like he could be even more of a monster than he's been. OKC, they really struggled to score in the first quarter. And I think eight of their 13 points eight minutes into the game were fast breaks in which Walker Kessler just wasn't able to get back. And some of that was going for offensive rebounds, but they don't have anyone else who's going to be able to stop a Shea Gilgis-Alexander in transition. And then I thought he really improved his effort level later in the game. He had a couple of plays in transition where he ran down guys from behind, including Shea, and got a block. But And Kessler also, I mean, he had 18 rebounds 
but I also think he could be even better there as well as he gets a little bit stronger like he's his pursuit of the ball he's very much trying to kind of high point it but he'll kind of get two hands on the ball but then just like not be strong enough to secure it and bring it down because he's kind of just uh catching it with his arms extended and so just getting a little bit stronger a little bit tougher and in a little bit better shape I mean he has a huge impact on a lot of possessions but he could get to the point where he has that impact on every possession and then he could be even better than he's been so far I I wonder where his game we've also seen some some elements offensively for Kessler that are intriguing for a player this young um but I want to do the jazz stats before we forget right 31 and 31 on the season seven and six since the last 1560 they have a positive net rating plus 0.6 but they're actually 16th in the league because that many teams are 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 over are over water right now they're actually 19 nba teams that are positive in net rating which i think is fascinating the Jazz are fifth in offense, 26th in defense, so fifth from the top, fifth from the bottom. And both Raptor and Elo project them to finish with 40 wins. One puts them 10th in the conference, one puts them 11th. There is a significant difference between 10th and 11th in regular season record. Raptor, 24% chance of making the final eight. Elo, 37. I want to talk some about Larry Markkinen's game now. And he had 13 in the first half. The three-pointer, he was struggling. He was 0 for 5 in the first half, uh, but got to the foul line some. Ended up with that 43. And I thought it was a really a great game for some growth for Markkinen. Because recall the, the way he's gotten a lot of stuff done has been working off the ball, getting screens a lot of times from smaller players, and then being set up by some of the good passers on this Jazz team, like Mike Conley, who's no longer here. And not only is Mike Conley no longer there, but they also don't really have much shooting anymore either, as we talked about. And so this is a, a chance now for Markinen. He's going to be the sole focus of the defense. They were top-siding him on a lot of these actions. He can't really go backdoor because they don't have any spacing, so there's help uh, available at the rim. They don't have great passing to get him the ball in those situations. But he's still found ways to catch the ball on the move in that fourth quarter or get out in transition. And he really, against a small Oklahoma City Thunder front line, dominated athletically. They're down 10 early in the fourth, and he was just started dunking all over their team, just bullying guys inside, catching it on the move. He had a huge dunk off a go and catch over two Thunder off a one foot. He's really explosive off a two feet. So I think he had maybe four dunks in the fourth quarter, and and the Jazz crowd was loving it. It was a a great crowd for the first night after the All-Star break for a team that traded a bunch of guys away and really just willed them back into the game with his physicality attacking the basket and he also was able to hit a couple of big threes late and then uh, of course drew the three shot foul at the end I'm sure we'll talk more about the end of this game but I was just really impressed by the way you know it wasn't quite like straight isolations for him but it was more of him really going against the set defense creating something and just powering through now can he do that against a team that has more interior size we'll see but this is a nice step forward for him uh, to really be able to generate the number of shots that he did he got on the offensive glass as well and he was plus 14 in in this game that they won by one in the end with him hitting the free three free throws in the last couple minutes uh seconds of 
overtime. So I, I was just really impressed by what he was able to do against a defense that I thought guarded him pretty well through large portions of the game for him to be able to find a way was pretty good. Sometimes the evolution of players who improve a lot is is you have to you they get harder contexts. I think about somebody like Zach Levine has had this at times where it's like, okay, you you originally succeeded in a more favorable environment. You had somebody setting you up and then eventually you have to take more of the rates. That can't be because your team traded those guys away or because you've earned it. and marketing taking those strides, doing more more to kind of in a more difficult circumstance is valuable it is important for him moving forward and i'm i'm very encouraged by that and yeah we could talk a little bit about the end of the game it well, was just a, a couple other small sure. jazz points here uh simone fontecchio oh five from three he's got a little slower release than you'd like from this player type i think i think overall you know he has he's had so he had that like game-winning dunk against the the warriors on the press that, that they had but other than that he really hasn't had many moments this season and he just hasn't been able to make shots you know i mean he's got okay size okay athleticism but it kind of takes him a while to load up he's been aggressive but he's only shooting 30 percent from threes 25 out of 82 on the season he'll have more chances as well he's taken uh over two-thirds of his shots from downtown and I think you know he's gonna have to probably really play a lot of three for them as well they, they just don't have much shooting particularly if Rudy Gay is gonna be out for a while so this will be a chance for him but like a lot of European shooting specialists it's it kind of taken him some time I think to adjust the NBA three-point line and I think that's all I've got on the the jazz players so yeah let, let's talk about the end of the game and then I have some other observations about some of the OKC players in general as well as you brought up earlier it looked like the Thunder as you know kind of continuing with how they played and the jazz got rid of guys it looked like they were going to have control and then marketing really went off it was the middle of the fourth as i recall which is kind of right around when i started tuning into the game where he he went off and that brought that brought the margin i think they were down roughly double digits and that and it tied it tied about 95 with a couple minutes to go yeah and so the jazz they're running some similar action where they first would get uh clarkson in kind of a double drab drag look with marketing and tht handling the ball then clarkson would flare out of it marketing would set the screen it was kind of odd though because they had Olinick and kessler also on the floor and those guys were just kind of standing next to each other in the corner as those their three main players uh, would interact meanwhile mark dignall went with shea wing jalen williams lou dort josh giddy and kenrich williams and Kendrick Williams had a couple of big threes, but uh, Markinen was uh, able to get back. Offensive rebounding was huge. huge down the end of this going. Lou Dort got a huge offensive rebound between three Jazz to put them up uh, by two with 108 left. Markinen had a tip too, I think right before that. Yeah, yeah. The offensive rebounding really killed the Thunder. Like they could, Mark Dagnall said after the game that this was, he thought it was a good loss because. It was a loss where you could point to specific failures in execution. One of the biggest ones he pointed to was the offensive glass for the Jazz. And, you know, this wasn't a game where the Jazz, like, shot incredibly well. This was things that the Thunder specifically could have executed better on. And so he, he doesn't like to lose, he said, but it, it's at least this is something where he, he could go to his team and say, hey, these are the things that you could control that you failed to control, and that's why you lost. Uh, and so the last play, down two, 
They run a Markkinen iso post up on the right side against Kendrick Williams. He goes for the spin move, little like half hook floater along the baseline that missed. And Walker Kessler goes between three thunder, gets the rebound. He tried to do like a two-hand power dribble and power up, got it on the glass. I thought he was going to get fouled. They didn't call that. But then he was able to get the tip off his own miss to send it into OT. Uh, Then there's 4.1 left after that. And... Kessler is on the floor. They run a little inbound play to Isaiah Joe flaring away from the sideline. And Kessler switches out on him, forces Joe off the line. And then Joe beats him and Kessler runs him down from behind and blocked his layup. It was a great play. Fantastic uh, to recovery to, to, yeah, to extend it in overtime. So Kessler, those multiple big plays with the offensive rebound and the block and then get into get into overtime. And you've talked about this before, but I, I definitely noticed in this game, I think there was a second close game going on at the same time that I actually often tune out, like I de-emphasize the first two minutes of overtime because there can actually be another game that's closer later than, yeah. than the five minutes in overtime. Yeah. And uh, overtime should be reduced to three or two minutes. I, I, it, it, like there's no downside to doing that for me because you're, I mean, I guess the only downside would be you're more likely to go into double overtime, but that's still, you know, it's not, well, more that would be almost the same amount of collective time. Yeah. Now, of course you, you things slow down as you get to the end of the overtime with more timeouts and, and stuff like that. But why it just seems annoying to give five minutes of overtime, not that that happened in this game, but to give five minutes of overtime to allow more separation, like why not increase your chances of another buzzer beater at the end of the first overtime. And you also have this, these moments, like you said, the first couple minutes of overtime where it's like, okay, this is, this isn't like maximum tension. Like you kind of, there's this collective air out of the balloon at the start of overtime, which I think they should just maintain that crazy amount of tension. And where I wanted to start with the overtime was OKC scored on almost every possession for the first about two, three minutes of overtime. And so it looked like they were getting comfortable enough The the Jazz made a couple of shots. I think a Linux had a shot and Markinen did. But then OKC, the offense slowed down a little bit. I thought the Jazz defense did a better job. And, and so then it got tight at the end. Yeah, so they started double teaming Shea. He got off the ball a couple of times. And then the last two attempts that Shea had, one was to try to win the game at the end. And then there was a, another one where they were up by two and it could have iced it. He just decided he wasn't passing anymore because guys, I think, had missed a few shots off of his passes. And one of them, he gets out of the double team of Abaji and got to the room this is actually what I, I apologize this is actually with the thunder down one they double team he just beats abaji out, out of the side of the double team and then pump fake and drew a foul on apology that hardy challenge but was correctly ruled as a foul and oh god i can't even read the play-by-play anymore <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is pathetic no i'm sorry this is actually with the thunder up one and he only makes one of the two free throws to put him up by two and then the jazz push the ball up after that get it to Markinen, and he was inside the arc tried to step back Lou Dort was on him and Dort you know I guess he kind of bodied him a little bit I didn't really get a great look the challenge uh, was deemed unsuccessful he might there have was got enough him a contact on- yeah like it, yeah. It, it, the defer the deferral to the call on the floor means that if they see basically anything they're going to do it I thought the contact was on the light side but still sufficient so maybe you wouldn't have called it a foul in the first place 
place. But as a and you still challenge it. I mean, it's the most important the most important call of the game. It ends yeah. up turning, and they still had another timeout to advance the exactly way. So there's no real downside yeah. to doing it. This by the way, this game both teams use their challenge during the final 12 seconds of overtime. Because the um, the Jazz had just used it as well. Both calls were over. Both calls were sustained, but it was two quick challenges, which meant that the end of this game took forever. Yeah, and then Shea was able to get open with a Michael Jordan esque shove on uh, Brian Russell, uh, but then two more guys came over. Shea went off the glass from kind of angle left and it just missed to give the jazz the win a couple thoughts on some of the thunder guys lou dort opened this game very aggressive as a driver and he's just the part of the reason his field goal percentage of the room has always been so bad is he's really just out of control on these drives and i would love for him to watch some drew holiday film because he's so strong dort is that he doesn't necessarily like if he just gets the initial advantage on his guy he doesn't need to continue going a million miles an hour once he gets a shoulder past the guy they're not going to get back in front of him if he could just slow down work on a little uh, floater game can i invoke another guy i'm going to bring this sure. up with somebody i'm, I'm going to talk about later alec burks does a really nice job of this now yeah alec burks is one of the first guys who was doing a euro step from left to right and then shooting off of his right leg with his right hand you know years and years ago now that's a very common move but it, he was one of the first guys doing it in the league so yeah i, I think if dort could just be more in control that would also uh, allow him to be a better passer out of those situations as well because he, he'll just either fight up a shot he has goes to some difficult reverse under the rim or he'll kind of get caught and potentially turn it over so he's just such a bowling ball and you see it on the defensive end too that guy and this was quite palpable in person the jazz got a bunch of illegal screens and part of why they did that is just they weren't that familiar with each other and guys were going early or whatever but also they just didn't want to screen lou dort they didn't want to give their body up and really lay the wood on him you could see guys kind of flinch out of it or guys would just get there and dort would fight through the screen and generally i think the jazz maybe had like five or six illegal screen calls both on and off the ball in this game so like you could still see that lou dort has the potential to be a, an elite defensive player uh but offensively i just would like to see a little bit more control because he just he doesn't he's not like this nuclear athletic finisher from a leaping standpoint so he should just use his strength more than he does josh giddy this was a really rough game for him from a shooting perspective uh, including inside the arc he was 05 from three number one uh and but w- was still eight out of 17 or sorry eight out of 18 from two a lot of missed floaters but in the overtime in particular, the Jazz were really gapping off of him. He did make up for it some with six offensive rebounds, but I didn't think he had a good defensive rebounding game. That's a, He is a very good rebounder uh, for his size, and they need that because he's effectively playing the four a lot. And But I thought that he, he was not really able to make them pay for the Jazz gapping onto Gilgis Alexander. They usually place him rather than having him in the corner. They usually have him one plus pass away from Shea when Shea's trying to work up top and that allows them to get more help and Giddy couldn't make them pay in this one and the Thunder you know this was this is not a game of pretty three-point shooting the Thunder were eight at 37 and Utah was 13 to 48 so that was actually the better uh three-point shooting performance uh Jay Will Jalen Williams the big man was three of four from downtown in 27 minutes you know he's starting to become a nice threat out there which is really important because he's not really a great score inside the arc he lacks it explosion but for the way that the thunder want to play they can kind of get by with him if he's going to make shots like this 
And then he also did his usual charge taking help defense. They actually put him in in the overtime once Kendrick Williams had these defensive errors that Dagnall was focused on. And Darius Arch uh, now plays for the Thunder as well. Didn't really do much. He was 0-2 from three. I think they're still trying to integrate him a little bit more. Like he's kind of taking over that Muscala role. Uh, Jeremiah Robinson Earl also got some of the center minutes as well and uh, he struggled to score Uh, also I thought that he is not as good defensively as Jalen Williams is in terms of taking charges stepping up not as good of a rebounder Uh, probably a better shooter in theory but uh, he'll at least take more of them but Jalen Williams shot better in this one and you know it's just it's kind of not really happening for Trey Mann right now he's just he takes a lot of bad shots off the dribble and and he doesn't do anything else and so yeah maybe he can become a Simons or a pool type if those shots go in but we haven't seen him improve to that level yet as a shooter i don't want to dwell too much on this this will come up in the future but i did a pod about a week ago with matt moore and we were talking about this idea of where the thunder go from here and i was talking about i'm not the biggest fan as presently constituted of the giddy shape fit and you could probably bring the trey man shape fit as well but the answer as we kind of work to it is well it doesn't have to be that player because of all the other resources they have and so that will put something on presti of like either giddy needs to get better or they need to be willing to marginalize him a little bit to get somebody who who does these other things. And obviously having somebody like Chet, if he's as good as we hope he'll be, that will make some of these decisions easier. But the idea that Oklahoma City might have to, kind of like the Pelicans in some ways, shift more from their current state to their final state than good young teams sometimes do, that's going to be important moving forward. Yeah, now if Chet Holmgren is going to be their center with his shooting ability and rim protection, that allows you to get away with playing Josh Giddy more. And and this was a bad game for Josh Giddy. He's it was. We probably haven't talked enough about how statistically he has been a lot better over the last couple of months or so, averaging in the high teens. And he has had some big scoring games. That floater has been going down for him. He still is a great passer. The Thunder love to run sets even at, on out of bounds plays, but if they can get him the ball near the elbow and then run some back cutting action when he's I think a much better passer when he has his feet set more as a big man almost and he could be one of the best in the league there especially if he's a little bit below the action and you got guys cutting back door he's really good at at finding those guys and so I I think obviously Giddy still has a a long way to go in his evolution there's a lot of natural talent there all right well so that was uh well over 30 minutes of recording time on jazz thunder uh let's get the thunder fundamentals did we do that already i already they're both done um okay well the one thing i can add uh law murray had this the thunder went on a four game losing streak in november and fell to four and seven they've had seven chances since then to win and get to 500 this was one of them and they've lost each time so far and then they lost it again who'd they lose to yesterday or was that uh, it might have been friday the phoenix suns that was a, a nine point game i believe that's right yeah so now they are three games under 500 Okay, your choice here. Where are we going next? Let's go to San Antonio. You want to uh, do their stats? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I, sure. Sure, I, sure why sure not? Yeah, I'm sure is... you're champing at the bit to do their since the last 15 and 60 because it's jaw-dropping. They are 14 and 47 now. They have lost 
16 straight games, 0-15 since we last checked in on them, 21 of their last 22, negative 10.7. Net rating is 30th in the NBA. This is a team we had there over. I don't think it's going to hit. I don't see them There was a time it looked very good. Yeah, I mean, they were 5-2 at one point, right? Uh, This is... Yeah, they would have to get to 23 to hit for their over to hit, I think, right? Over two seasons or just this one? <laughs> I think it was 22 and a half. Uh, uh, so yeah, they are 30th in net rating, negative 10.7, 28th on offense, and just a, an unbelievably putrid 30th on defense, 121.4. That is, that's a lot of crooked numbers. <laughs> that is the worst in NBA history by quite a bit. I wonder how, how far they are now. Uh, per cleaning the glass and then uh they actually project to get to 19 wins uh per raptor they got a big showdown coming up against the rockets this week uh and uh elo also likes them at 19 wins and uh probably not gonna be making the playoffs so i i want to start this with i was tooling around thinking of what i want what i wanted to do for the spurs and this is not the primary thrust of it but there is only one current member of the san antonio spurs who has a positive EPM estimated plus minus this season. I will give you three guesses. Well, so is this guy, has he played like a reasonable number of minutes? I would say so. Okay. Zach Collins. Second, but not positive. Gah! All right, let's see. Well, I mean, Vassell has been out for a while. He's supposed to maybe even come back. Hey, maybe there's hope for the over yet. Um, Let's see. I mean, it, it's, you know, Sohan actually had some okay numbers early, but I mean, he's been playing during this stretch. I, I'm going to say Vassell. Vassell is fourth, so not him. Fuck. All right. Um. Do you want a hint? No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, I, there's 15 guys on the roster. I should be I should be able to get it in three guesses. Uh, so I'm going to rule out Devontae Graham. He hasn't been there long enough. Well, no. So this is full season stats. It includes the stats on their other teams. Because that's how EPM <laughs> does it. That that does give you a... Uh, let's see here. Uh, I mean, it's, it, tell me it's Kem Birch. It is, it is, yeah, it is not Kem Birch. <laughs> Um, it is Charles Bassey. Charles Bassey, who just well, he wasn't uh, on he wasn't on any other teams. He wasn't, but other guys were. That's why I wanted to just oh oh okay. Well, that that, that was well he he yeah. And so Bassey recently converted. yeah he was going to be my next guest. Uh, uh, okay, sure. Right. That's, 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 yeah, that's it was going to be Gorgie Jang, I'm sure, but um. <laughs> But Charles Bassey converted from a two-way, got m- multiple guaranteed seasons. And so also as a, a stray note, that means the Jazz have, or sorry, not the Jazz, the Spurs have multiple backup centers with fully guaranteed contracts next year. Not for a lot of money. I mean, well, I guess Collins And, and I got guaranteed. to see uh, at the end of that Dallas game, got to see uh, a bunch of them playing together. They had the uh, Barlow, Jang, Bassey front court uh, <laughs> mopping things up uh, in the loss to Dallas. It, it was took incredible. me back to uh, the Triple Towers look of Will Purdue, Tim Duncan and and David Robinson back in uh, 1998. Wow. Um, But the players that I wanted to focus on um, with the Spurs, in part because Blake Wesley, remember San Antonio drafted two guys I think of as two guards in in the 2022 draft, uh, Blake Wesley and Malachi Branham. Wesley's been hurt so much of this year that we don't have enough of a sample. But Branham, you know, he's at about, uh, I believe it's, thousand minutes played for the year so i wanted to take a look at him and right now as the spurs are battling through all this brandon is starting playing roughly 30 minutes a game wesley is now that he's back healthy again he's playing about 20 minutes a game off the bench and over the full season malachi brandon playing 22 minutes a game 9.4 points about two assists two rebounds and it's encouraging that brandon is converting 56 percent of his twos and taking more twos than threes but only 32% on six threes per 36. That's a little bit of a lower rate, little bit of a lower success rate 
than I would like to see for him, especially considering small sample at Ohio State. Malachi Branham shot 42 percent on 89 threes and made 83 percent of his free throws. So if you're kind of I'm not the modeler there, but you would kind of look at that and maybe think that. And yeah, and quickly on that three point shooting, the way that he shoots his threes, like he is, a, I thought he, his form is very similar to Wayne Ellington. And that Wayne Ellington was the other guy who it kind of took him a little while to adapt to the NBA three point line. And he, he kind of shot, was shooting more of a jump shot from three in college. Some guys can't shoot that way from the NBA three point line. They have to shoot more of a set shot. So it's not a surprise to me that there's been a little bit of an adjustment period again, noting that this is not a huge early on here one thing that stuck out i went through brandon's synergy stats is that for the moment he's actually more efficient and i'm not talking about percentiles i'm talking about points per possession as a pick and roll ball handler scoring than on spot ups and it's uh you know it's close with those two but typically speaking guys are much more efficient on spot ups they're higher you know assisted and everything else and so i watched some of the film of brandon on pick and rolls also as a note as i'm getting into this 1.18 points per possession on runners which is very high and his touch on them actually seems pretty good um you know as I, I watched some of those as i was getting into everything else and watching brandon on pick and roll film we talked about this last year with josh primo and numerous other guys it's you're evaluating it you know not on necessarily the on on the volume of the reps but on the success of them and what concerned me about this part of brandon's game is that he doesn't really have a lot of shake he's not really creating a lot of separation um but i do like that brandon keeps his head up and is intending to make the right play for a young team for a young guy who hasn't necessarily always you don't necessarily expect to have those responsibilities moving forward that is a good thing because like there would be times where Branham doesn't really have it. He hasn't created enough separation and he's kicking it out to the three-point line or he's doing something else. Just the ability to bail when you don't have it. Um, and I like that Branham, he, it takes him a little longer to get there, but he has reasonable balance on his pull-up shot. It's actually more of a set shot than most guys' pull-ups, which is kind of good. Like if you think about it as an, as an accent part of his offensive portfolio. But what concerned me is the idea of, you know, like creating separation, having that shake, not, not, he's, he's not really dynamic. You know, if we're not counting vertically, like we're, he's not really dynamic laterally or front and back or changing speeds. So my theory of him as a potential pick and roll player, I think eventually you want it to be a smaller part of Brandon's game. I don't think he has the juice is maybe more of a strength game. You know, you get into more of that, like Alec Burks, I brought that up before that sort of style where, or, I mean, you could even, he, he doesn't have the same positional size, but somebody like Kyle Anderson, where when you get an advantage, you never concede it and you work in that. And maybe you get it by when, how you catch the ball or getting a little more adept at setting up the defender in the pick and roll. And so I, I was excited when I saw that his pick and roll ball handler scoring numbers were good. I was less enthusiastic when I watched the film, but it's still good that he's having some success there. Well, one thing that's uh, impressive to me, you would have thought based maybe on his game at Ohio State, and frankly, also based on the way that the Spurs have developed players and what they've often emphasized, that he'd be taking a lot of mid-rangers, and he's not only taking 9% of his shots from as twos outside of 15 feet, which I, I think that's encouraging. Like He's able to actually generate a little bit better of shots. If you look at his high pick and roll numbers, he is out of 58 high pick and rolls where he's taken a shot he's taken a jumper off the dribble 33 times but he's actually gone to the basket 25 times for and for a guy who's not 
particularly explosive, you know, not a point guard. Uh, that's actually encouraging to me that he's getting to the basket that much, uh, particularly on this Spurs team that doesn't have a lot of juice necessarily. And he's been efficient uh, on those plays getting to the basket as well. So I've been encouraged uh, by the fact that he's able to maybe generate a little bit better because you don't look at him and say, oh, he's not a great athlete. Like his handle's not like unbelievable, but he is actually able to attack the rim. And that's for a guy like that, you know, you don't want him to be a, I mean, not that this would be a bad player to draft with the 20th pick, but a, a guy like Gary Trent, where all of his pick and rolls are just going to end in a mid-range jumper. Like we haven't seen that from him, which has been in- encouraging to me. It's a good point. And the, I always talk about how rookie seasons are about flashes and you do see those elements of, to me, it's more of a complimentary player, but, and, and I, you know, I have, I didn't watch a ton of his film at Ohio state, but I, I think there is some of that in there and you can adapt the parts of his game that have been positive this year into like a secondary playmaker role that I think could fit reasonably well. And I, I want to watch more Brandon defensive film later on, but this first team is just, especially now that Pirtle is Pirtle's gone is just such a disaster defensively that I'm not sure we're going to get much usable tape out of it. Anything else on these guys? No, let's go. I know you focused on on games. Do you want to do uh, Denver Memphis? Yeah, I think that's a good one. Uh, let's get to the fundamentals first for the Denver Nuggets. The first seeded presently, Denver Nuggets are 42 and 19, a respectable, very good, nine and five since the last 1560. They are fifth in the entire NBA in net rating. They are second in the Western Conference. We will get to the number one team very soon. They're second in offense, 16th in defense. And wait, the, wait, no, the Nuggets are first in the Western Conference. They're not in net rating. Oh, not in net rating. Excuse me. Yes. Sorry. Yes, that's okay. Um, And currently, because of this hot streak that coincided with a cold streak for Memphis, they actually have created some real separation, not only in the loss column, they're currently ahead by four, but in the projections, they're projected to finish with 56 wins in both 538 models, which is, I believe, roughly five games clear of the entire conference for the number one seed. Yeah, so unless there's an injury to Jokic, you imagine that they're going to be able to salt that away with about 20 games to go, and they really would probably have to, for anyone to realistically catch them, they would have to go like 500 the rest of the way, and that anyone would be the I mean, there's even there's no one even close that close yeah. to the Grizzlies. They're, they're the 10 TC, games right? ahead of the Mavs and a few are than that ahead of the Kings and a few other teams in the loss column. Don't rule out the Kings, top two seed possibility. Definite possibility. So, but that said, this was a just throw it in the incinerator game for Denver and the Michael Malone all bench unit. It really just is what ended up killing them. And, and the Nuggets didn't make shots in this game and the Grizzlies did, you know, through the combination of Tyus Jones and Luke Kennard uh, made nine threes uh, between them. And Kennard, I, I think while we are sort of like, hey, you know, what is, what is really the point of this? Like, he is a good player. He does have a skill set that is really going to help them in the regular season uh, because they just didn't really have enough guys who could be explosive from three that you didn't have to leave. And they went to some interesting groups with Tyus, Kennard, and Desmond Bain. I mean, that's a lot of shooting in the backcourt with Ja out. Um, but for Denver, I mean, they, I think Yoko leaves the game they're down seven or nine or so eight nine minutes into the first and then he comes back in and they're down 20 and the Grizz continued to get out in transition hit threes uh Denver couldn't hit many of theirs Grizz had a really nice defensive game we can talk about more well and and on the on the point I watched more of Nuggets Cavs than I did Nuggets Grizzlies and that game almost fell by the wayside because of the 
all all bench units as well. And Jokic was, I believe, plus like 14 in a game that they that was close towards the end. And also on that front, I mean, I want to mention that the Nuggets are really missing Aaron Gordon. He's still out with this rep, left rib contusion because not only does are they missing his defense in the starting lineup, but that also means that Vlako Chanchar can't be in the second unit. Well, he could. They would but he could. To actually stagger. <laughs> Wait, what? Which what they're, uh... sta- stagger? Sta- yeah. I, I, I don't understand what, what you're saying. Yeah. Which which they're not really doing. But yeah, and, and we didn't, you know, Jamal Murray, they, again, I think that eventually putting him on the second group would be the way to go. Like, I, I, I wish they would adopt the Sixers approach where it's just the kitchen sink of everybody except Joel Embiid that they could kind of do the same thing. Particularly because I think someone like Bruce Brown, I think is a little wasted on this second unit they and reggie jackson now is playing for them as well so it's reggie jackson bruce brown christian brown jeff green and thomas bryant uh, who has that had a a decent game uh, i think uh, right after the trade deadline but it was uh, relatively not heard from in this one at uh shooting one of four from the field and adam mars did ha- have an interesting point that he expected them to have a few games that the bench unit just ended up blowing and i think that that's a reasonable conception like now let's keep in mind here Jokic was negative 20 in in 27 minutes uh, as well and I thought he had some defensive struggles which we'll get to but they're trying to integrate Thomas Bryant they haven't really had this pick and roll center who can score a little bit Uh, they don't really have a great pick and roll ball handler on the second unit they've been trying to have Reggie Jackson do some of that but they also don't really have the shooting if you're going to play Bruce Braun and Christian Braun and Jeff Green like those guys are all okay at best so to really play spread pick and roll with that group they don't have quite the personnel to do that and I think Bruce Brown in particular is more of a cutter playing off of Jokic uh both off the ball or as a a role man like they just don't have anyone to use that skill set so he's kind of sort of the backup point guard but he also is playing off the ball at the at, you know Christian Brown is another guy who I think is just better as a cutter so a lot of these guys I think have a skill set that Jokic could prop up particularly given that they have some good defensive players and you know maybe you can get Thomas Bryan and Jamal Murray working together. They've got more spacing uh, on the starting unit with KCP. So uh, I would be trying to integrate Bryant more into those groups. And, you know, you probably leave Michael Porter in with those groups as as well. And, you know, maybe you keep Aaron Gordon tethered to Jokic uh, as well to uh, and just have like defense and cutters around Nikola Jokic would be like my theory of more of a second group and then spread pick and roll with Thomas Bryant and your other offensive players uh, when Jokic is out of the game. That to me makes more sense. Um, Back to this game, though, the initial plan for the Nuggets, which met with some success, they had KCP guarded by jaw and they had KCP working off the ball working off of Jokic on some cuts and he was able to get some decent looks early on you know jaw is not great as as an off-ball defender uh at least like tracking an individual man I think he's he does more in help defense than some small guards like him uh Xavier Tillman I thought did a pretty darn good job on Nikola Jokic and he was a, a game best plus 25 in this one in 25 minutes and he was able to get loose some early with some quick floaters he got a dunk at the rim when they overcommitted to jaw it got like a little uh tip in alley-oop from dylan brooks off a broken play early and but he's just again nobody's gonna stop Jokic. Jokic got some offensive rebounds he got some soft hooks but at least like Jokic, it wasn't just like putting him in the goal and then i also thought that jaron jackson was got some foul trouble early uh, of course uh only played 21 minutes but santi aldama 
was really good in this game as well. He had three or four deflections uh, when they tried to pass over the top. Like he even got Jokic a couple of times uh, on that when they brought Aldama's man. I think he was guarding Jeff Green into the play. And then Green tried to slip to the rim and Aldama was able to get a hand on a, a Jokic pass, got a couple of other deflections and help defense. Like he's actually got some size to come over and make plays. Uh, bothered Jokic a couple of times. So that, that was pretty impressive. He had like a beautiful Euro step in transition. And that was the other thing that just killed the nuggets in this one was just not getting back on defense i think if these two teams do match up in the playoffs which if they're the one in the two seeds i wouldn't expect that because i think one of them will lose before the conference finals even with home court but Jokic is not amazing at sprinting back on defense and he's also not a great deterrent at the rim when guys are coming downhill at him anyway and Ja got a bunch of fast breaks right before Jokic checked out in the first and then the grizz did a great job of getting deflections and running with those second groups they don't have a lot of rim protection with thomas bryant either and I thought it was interesting that the Nuggets went to a drop coverage against John Morant, and it was an extreme drop a lot of the times for Jokic, uh, particularly late in the second quarter. And Ja was got a floater, got to the dot from near the free throw line. That's a shot you're willing to give up right from the dotted line where he can just pop right into it with no contest at all. That's probably one that you don't necessarily want to be giving up as well. So it's interesting to see, though, that the Nuggets didn't go with their two-on-the-ball strategy. Maybe they felt like, you know, you would think with Tillman setting the screen they might want to do more of that and force Tillman to make a play but I think they were hurt too by not having the athleticism of Aaron Gordon on the back line and maybe that's why they tried to contain a little bit more but uh Nuggets didn't hit shots in this game Grizzlies did let's see what else can I talk about here well I want to do Memphis's stats before we forget the Memphis Grizzlies are 36 and 23 on the season though they are five and eight since the last 15 and 60 that's a part of what created the separation between the Grizzlies and the Nuggets Memphis is the team that is tops in the West in net rating. They're second overall in the league at plus 5.4 per hundred possessions, 11th in offense, number two in defense, and both 538 models projected and finish as the two seed in the West, Raptor with 51 wins, Elo with 50, and in part because of the model's skepticism on the Sacramento Kings, they are, the the Grizzlies on both the projections right now are four games or more clear of the three seeds in the West. Yeah, as you mentioned, the Grizz projecting for 51 wins, and if I had to guess, I think they'll beat that projection. I think we'll talk about a game in a in a second of that maybe kind of details why that is uh but a, a couple other grizz notes uh, their strategy you know steven adams is still out for them aaron gordon is out for the nuggets but this, uh, these teams are relatively at full strength other than that maybe gordon's a little more important in the nuggets than adams is to the grizz although the grizz at five and eight since uh, over the even with this win over their last 13 all of that i think without adams you know they have missed him uh but they had dylan brooks on jamal murray and then they had xavier Tillman on Jokic and they actually were willing to switch that Murray Jokic pick and roll and Dylan Brooks we've seen him in this role against Carl Anthony Towns like you know if Jokic actually gets the ball against Dylan Brooks deep you know it's, it's one thing but Dylan Brooks is gonna fight he's gonna make him lob it over the top as well like the the Nuggets I mean again this the competitive portion of this game was limited <laughs> shall we say but I thought that was an interesting strategy and we've seen Dylan Brooks do that against Carl Anthony Towns in the playoffs like he's got enough fight and enough heft that he can at least hold up in those situations and particularly if it's late clock particularly if it's a situation where I mean we see a lot of teams do this uh, the Magic do a lot of it too the Warriors did a lot of it last year where you don't you know that you're planning to switch but you don't just 
okay, we'll switch right outside the three-point line. It's more, okay, we're we're going to let you go into your pick and roll. We'll kind of pretend like it's more of a conventional coverage. And then once you get to near the foul line or so, that's when we're actually going to execute the switch. It's, it's more of a designed late switch. A lot of times teams will just call that out, but you can see that when you get that design, it's kind of too close quarters to really, you know, get the switch. Like you're, you're inside the arc. So there's, you don't have the quickness advantage for like a Murray against Tillman. Then he's got to back it out and you can kind of reset your defense. And there isn't necessarily space to find the roll man at that point either, or, or get a post up. So that's a tactic that I think if you have any kind of mobility at center, a lot of teams are, are going to now where they're almost inviting the attack initially, and then they'll switch. And it's kind of like, well, you don't really have the space to attack the mismatch the way you would if you switch earlier in the possession. Definitely a tactic to watch and like frustration with low resistance switches has been something you and I have echoed a lot over the so, last So this season. is, yeah, this is more of a high resistance. Exactly. Switch, uh, Which is in some ways. And a I natural think this adaptation. Is also, yeah, this is also an addition to the fact that, you know, there aren't a lot of centers just aren't going to be out there. This is another reason why I think teams like OKC are just going more towards having small guys set the screens regularly where you can't necessarily get away from that. And then it's a guy who's popping rather than rolling. And so you don't have that tactic available as much. All right, which one of your teams do you want to get to here? Let's do the New Orleans Pelicans. You want to do All their right, stats? Th- thank God I was worried you were going to go Houston next. I'm like, man, we are... <laughs> Yeah, so the Pels are 30 and 31, 4 and 10 since we last checked in on them. And, it, and interesting, they've had pretty much their group together other than Zion Williamson, no word, uh, obviously, on his potential return. They are still positive in net rating, uh, 15th in the NBA, 0.7. But recall, I mean, they were third, second in the league in net rating during uh, those solid days when uh, Zion was held, even without Brandon Ingram. Uh, and, you know, they were well over five. So they, they've really been in free fall. They've fallen all the way to 17th on offense, still made maintaining 10th on defense although that has fallen as well and they project through both projection systems 41 and 41 ninth seed and eighth seed were per raptor and elo respectively and right about 50 percent chance of the playoffs for each of those projection systems before i get into the main topic with the pelicans i want to mention that after taking a few games to kind of get reacclimated bringing was missed a lot of this season ingram had a stretch where he scored 25 or more points in seven consecutive games where he played in he did miss one of those one of those eight um team went four and four including um there was that game that he missed where they still beat the sacramento kings by 32 and during that stretch ingram 30 points five rebounds four and a half assists 52 percent from three which is great 52 percent from the field also good and getting to the line 6.4 times per game so we we're getting closer to brendan ingram being right he does also have the ball in his hands more often because Zion Williamson is unavailable, but the main thing I looked into, as was inspired by a tweet from Mason Ginsburg, is the stark difference between, and it's these specific configurations. And so it's a four, it's a four-man unit, and then an exclusion. And that group is CJ McCollum, Brandon Ingram, Herb Jones, and Jonas Valanciunas, with no Zion Williamson because Zion has been out for this really cold snap for the New Orleans Pelicans. And so last year, that group played roughly 600 possessions together. Remember that. CJ wasn't on the team the whole year and then missed part of the rest of the season as well with an injury. They had a plus nine net rating and I will get into this with some substance that was fueled primarily actually by their, by their offense. They were, had an offensive rating just under 124, which is astonishing. Like that's really, really good. And yes, we're not in the biggest sample, but that's still striking. And that same group. So those four players on Zion Williamson off, they've gone from a plus nine net rating to a negative 19 
net Oof. rating in roughly 400 possessions. So we're we're in a smaller sample again here. And yeah, but I, I mean that that's got to be when you look at that's got to be the worst combination just about in the league for a, a group with four kind of intended starters in it. Like one would think, and uh, one difference. So you, I, I talked about the similarities of that group. That you're only adding a fifth player. Is that the most common fifth player last year was actually Jackson Hayes. So that was they were playing super big CJ and oh, well, that's that's the solution. Just start start him again yes absolutely that is the solution and so see so they had that configuration so it was mostly jackson hayes the other two guys who they did the most there as the fifth man Devonte graham and tony snell tony snell was was in those <laughs> this this year it's primarily trey murphy is the is the lead primary there but then also even though he's only been on the team a few weeks josh richardson is the second most common and then jose alvarado and when i was looking at well okay well what went well for this team last year part of the answer is almost everything i mean defensively they weren't there and i'll get into that but offensively and seth partner talked about this a little bit he did a, some twitter responses on the on that idea which is part of what inspired this and there were some really unsustainable parts of that offensive success as you would expect for anything that's like 99th percentile for anything you're going to see regression to the mean um for that group but the pelicans last year in those lineups were 51% on long twos and 52% on floaters. So their two pointers around, away from the basket were each over 50%, which is ridiculous. And opponents were missing a ton of corner threes, 35%. And usually those are assisted. Usually those going at a higher rate. So all three of those elements, even with the mid-range shooting on this team, you would expect to regress to a mean, which would be significantly less favorable. And one thing, though, that was striking about the group this year is that they're actually bottom 10 percentile per lineup splits in both offense and defense. And the biggest thing that stuck out to me, and this is pooling things together, is the overall lack of rim pressure. So that collection is zeroth percentile, zeroth percentile in free throw attempt drawing. They're also only taking roughly 28% of their attempts in the restricted area and not making many of them. So you think about how those how those elements fit together. That means that you're not getting the easy stuff. And and shots around the basket don't have to be half court offense. It could be that they're not getting there in transition that actually comes up later. And it, so you're making life a lot easier on the defense. You can shoot mid-rangers, but you have to have some sort of offensive foundation outside of it. Yeah, and this also is not a great passing group, right? Either I, I mean, and you know, maybe if you throw Murphy in, they're probably still below average from a spot-up shooting standpoint with Herb Jones out there. You know, uh, CJ just hasn't been as good overall this year either, and that's been a big part of it. That both he, when you look, talked about that incredible mid-range shooting that they had last year, is he and Ingram, and both those guys are both excellent mid-range shooters. Expecting them to duplicate the numbers that they had last year was probably unrealistic. And, and, and on so, that and on that front, yeah. this group takes almost 16% of their shots as long twos. And unless yeah, you're Kevin Durant, you're not going to be doing that at a high enough volume to sustain an offense. Yeah, and also let's keep in mind, like they they don't really have guys who are drawing double teams. They don't have guys who are great passers. You're not attacking the rim and getting two on the ball there. So, and then you also have guys that you can help off at the same time, and you don't have great passing if you do get a, a small advantage to beat that so i i think this is 
they certainly were over their heads a little bit last year. I think these guys can play better for sure. And now that Ingram is back to playing well, I think that'll help them. You know, I don't, I don't think these guys are going to be like substantially below 500 or anything going forward here without Zion. But it does seem pretty clear that they don't have, and particularly, you know, I think I had more concerns about them as a playoff team due to some of these flaws that they had individually with guys like Valanchunas defensively and Herb Jones on the offensive end and uh, not having enough shooting overall but that's kind of started to manifest itself more so it it does seem like they really are reliant on zion williamson coming back to have that one thing that opponents just can't deal with and then maybe you would think that more of this stuff is going to click into place Uh, but Um, i mean yeah two other weaknesses that i want to emphasize here one is and this you can credit some of this to jackson hayes last year pelicans iteration in these lineups was effective and frequent in transition and this year they're neither of those things they're not running a ton and they haven't been successful i'm a little bit skeptical i'd I'd be really interested to see stats on this on whether transition like points per possession how much that sustains year after year i think there are some teams and some players that can do it um but how often you run of course can be a huge variable but the defensive end, like, so I brought up that their offense had this huge shift. Basically, they they dropped, like, 18 points in, in offensive rating during this time. They weren't good on defense in these groups either. It was just that they were so good on offense, it, it overcame that. And yes, when a group is bottom, you know, towards the bottom of the league, even in splits in defense, one of the first things you look at is opponent shooting like Pelicans aren't particularly lucky on opponent shots. But there are two problems, and you can think about that this isn't a huge surprise in these lineups that rear their head. One is they don't force any turnovers and you don't really see sharks in this group. You know, Ingram, Herb Jones can do that, but I don't, he can do that. But CJ Ingram, Valanciunas, not necessarily. And a lot of times now the fifth is Trey Murphy. He doesn't do a ton of that either. And horrendous rim protection. It has been a criticism low these many years for the two of us with Valanciunas and not surprisingly, that group, they give up a fair amount of shots at the rim, but also they give up an incredibly high percentage. So the same easy shots that the Pelicans are not getting, they are conceding. Interestingly, Josh Richardson has now played four games with the team. He's averaging over 25 minutes per game. Uh, they did have that win at OKC in his first game there, but now that they've lost three straight, including a, a couple of kind of ugly losses Uh, all of them on the road to the Lakers. They were competitive against Toronto, but they lost that one and then uh, lost by 22 to the Knicks in a game that was not remotely close. So they definitely are not trending in the right direction right now. Maybe if they get home, things can stabilize. They have played six of their last seven on the road uh, as well. But I mean, they've lost now. Oh no, I'm sorry. I was looking at Josh Richardson's game log and some of those (laughs) include San Antonio. So I apologize. He he lost a few games there. Yeah, I was like, wow, this is really the the Pels have lost, uh, have lost like, uh, you know, 19 of of their last 20. Uh, No, no, the Pelicans have been the most successful of the teams that I focused on during this 15 and 60. Oh my God. All right. While you're at it, let's, uh, let's do the Rockets here uh, as well. Oh they boy. 13 and 46. That robust three and 10 since we last checked in on them, but they've been playing without Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, since the break. They are 29th in the NBA with a negative 9.3 net rating, 30th on offense, 28th on defense. Uh, they project for the number 15 seed per Raptor, 18 wins. Spurs have 19, so this will be uh, a fascinating one. Uh, also, 
also the 15 seed per ELO, uh, 1963. That would, I think would be a tie with the Spurs. They won't be making the playoffs. And uh, while I was uh, waiting out a snowstorm in the Reno airport on Friday night and then uh, taking the cattle call on to Southwest, uh, you were watching the Houston Rockets in person and uh, you were complaining uh, about how ugly it was. And I was like, would you like to trade places with me? I'm, I'm guessing you probably actually thought about it, though. <laughs> I was not thinking about it. At least I was comfortable temperature wise and I was seeing NBA basketball person. I will, I will, I will say they were first world problems. Um, the Rockets are dealing with, I don't know what level of world we want to call it at problems organizationally, but um, yeah, this was, it was a rough game because. Can you just go through their rotation sure. in this game? Cause, cause I alluded to this earlier of just how this always seems to happen. And, you know, obviously it's not like the Houston Rockets are some amazing team to begin with here, but Golden State has Draymond Green, Steph Curry, and Andrew Wiggins all out. And they, uh, the Houston Rockets were not remotely competitive. Yeah. And not only did those three players not play other than Klay Thompson, I would say most of the Warriors played poorly. And they still won this game going away. And so the rotation for the Rockets, remember that Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green are still out. So their starting five was Ty Ty Washington, Jay Sean Tate at the two, Jabari Smith, Kenyon Martin Jr., and Alperin Shangun as the starting lineup. And as you brought up, that's a rookie point guard, a center, and then three guys who probably, based on their shooting, their natural offensive position is power forward. So very little passing. Very little shooting. The Rockets shot 11 of 35 overall from three. And the starting lineup, I think, made like six of them over the course of the contest. And you're like, oh, that was rough. And the guy, the players coming off the bench for them in this contest, Dacian Nix, Josh Christopher, Tari Eason, and Usman Garuba, who probably would have played a little more, but he got three fouls in like three minutes. I'll, I'll talk a little bit. I actually continue to like Usman Garuba. But it is a very challenging offensive ecosystem for everyone involved. And I thought Tai Tai Washington, like I appreciated him more in absentia, where in the beginning part, it's like, oh, the Rockets offense is a little bit shaky. But at least then once they went to Knicks and, and these lineups that were even more flawed offensively without Shangun, and you're like, oh, there's no, they're not really pushing the pace. They're not really generating good shots. They can't really hit any shots. And so that makes life really hard on all of these guys. It didn't help that Jabari Smith missed all five of his threes during the early going. He did make one late. And I, I focused my analysis in part because the macro was so bad. I focused my analysis more in the micro sense on each of these individual players. What I liked about Ty Ty Washington was that he was keeping things moving in transition and he showed confidence taking three pointers, showing confidence when you're currently shooting 21% on the season is I, mostly a good thing because that, you know, it's the mentality and it's a small sample. He's only taken 56 this year. So, uh, you know, against a in a more cogent overall system, I think of Washington more as like a backup guard now who, if he develops a lot, can become maybe a starter in time. And part of why this game was such a struggle for the Rockets was their talent. But another part of it was Albert Shingun has been a positive player for them this year. Kavon Looney might be Shingun kryptonite because, <laughs> um, and I was sitting next to Colin Ward-Henniger, who has brought this up almost instantly, which was such a great point. I wish I had thought of it before he did, where Albert Shingun's game is built so much on like fakes and flails, which I don't mean as a criticism. It's just something he does a lot. And Kavon Looney never jumps. So basically it's that I, I described it as it's like that scene in Indiana Jones where the guy is like, I think that was with a machete where he's like doing all these tricks and then Indy and then Indy just shoots him. And it's just like you, you, <laughs> you, 
like yeah. Kevon Looney does not react to any of these things. Then, and then Shingun goes, ah, crap. I guess I'll just like take a weird turnaround or something like that. And Shingun overall, he was two of 10 from the field. One of those two makes was a three. So he was one of nine on twos in this game, five points, eight assists though. He did have some nice passes in 24 minutes of action. And that Shingun's minutes were the best. The Rockets offense looked and but why did he only play 24 minutes? Was it just so much of a blowout that they just it, didn't it got out of in? hand. He wasn't really in foul trouble. I think there was was a point where he like would felt a little bit awkward physically i can't remember that for sure um but it was also i think they wanted to get a look at some of these young dudes at, at different points in time and for jabari smith this was another challenging game i mentioned the 0 for 5 from 3 during the early early going he ended up 4 of 16 from the field um and remember this is no draymond green this is no real backup center for the golden state warriors so you should be able to get stuff around the basket and i noticed i looked after the game i was inspired jabari smith jr is doing so little on the ball on this season and he's been relatively healthy overall he only has 31 possessions as a pick and roll ball handler i didn't include passes apologies on that 27 isolation score possessions and 44 post-ups. So this is mostly him as a play finisher and the efficiency stats really haven't been there overall. And one of my frustrations with Smith was that he didn't have enough activity off ball. And unless Javari is going to become an on-ball guy, which I'm mostly skeptical of, even going back to his Auburn film, I was less positive there than some, is you, like, I mean, you're not going to be Buddy Heald. You're not going to be Clay Thompson or Steph Curry out there. But, you know, if you don't have the ball, try to try to get something going there. And I will give Smith credit that he did a better job than most. You and I over time have talked about the Houston's putrid transition defense on this season. He did a better job than almost all of his teammates getting back, but he was weirdly ineffective as the like guy back transition defender. And over the year, I've noticed that depending on the moment, Jordan Poole can be a very inconsistent transition finisher, especially over a good contest. It's I, I once analogized it to Russell Westbrook, where like Westbrook, it was because he's going a million miles a second. So there just wasn't necessarily an angle with Poole. He's just overly ambitious. But for whatever reason, he made like three transition finishes around and over through Jabari Smith, which is not exactly the most encouraging thing in the world. Yeah, Jabari, not really a guy who's been a playmaker defensively. And I think more of the appeal there is his ability to possibly switch and, and defend with length. But yeah, as units with him as a center or, or with him as a rim protector, uh, making plays on the back lines. So I, I think you'd hope maybe if he's going to play with Shingun, Shingun's not a great rim protector either so maybe you're in a more aggressive pick and roll coverage with Shingun, and then you've got Jabari Smith on the back line but you know, he hasn't really shown that potential as a guy who can affect shots around the couple of quick notes on their their kind of young bench players Tari Eason similar story to what we've seen before I, I really like him defensively offense is a work in progress and he's can sometimes be weirdly inefficient transition including this game he bricked a dunk which seemed pretty open and it bounced a mile high off the rim but I like his energy defensively and Eason's rough edges offensively I think can absolutely be sanded out I think he's a player worth giving that development more honestly it's probably off-court coaching rather than on-court reps like I think that's probably the way to do it I'm a fan of Usman Garuba defensively I cracked up because he did get three fouls one of which was dubious in like three minutes and then didn't play as much the rest of the game 
but he defends with good activity level and moves reasonably well. I mean, even going back to when we saw him internationally play, I thought that was something with Garuba. And so how you actualize that on a better version of the Rockets will be a challenge, especially because they have Eason, who I think has more offensive potential, even if it hasn't become production just yet. And for Josh Christopher, someone who I was high on in the team, like I saw him at a Team USA camp years ago. One frustration is that he just hasn't brought it from three. In this game, he was five to six on twos, which is respectable, and one for four on threes, and that's broadly in line with his season. He's made converting 55% of his twos, which for a, a guard, totally can, can be happy with that, but just 24% of his three-pointers. And Christopher, in part because of the surrounding talent, but in part because he just does, isn't as dynamic as I'd hoped on ball, there were a few times where it seemed like he had a drive that was headed in the right direction, but it didn't create enough of an advantage. And like also, which is kind of striking when you consider how bad this team is at shooting. Like the Warriors, they could have helped more than they did. And it just never became anything. It like he couldn't use that little bit to get like a layup or to get a pass to a guy around the basket or to kick it for a three and or draw fouls. That's been a big criticism of mine with Christopher overall in his career. So you have that. And then another guy that I was intrigued by back when he was on the G League night was Dacian Nix. And Nix, his body's gotten better. And I still like him as a passer. So you put those two things together, you could potentially build a backup point guard out of that. Not enough dynamism on the ball, not creating enough advantages, and not typically as consistent a three-point shooter. He was three of seven in this contest, a lot of which occurred in garbage time. On the season, he's about 32%. And so... That's a a real challenge for the Rockets moving forward. I mean, obviously, they're going to look miles better when they have some of their best players available is where do some of these players slot in on an actually good team? And it's like, are the defensive players good enough offensively to be viable starters? Or are they more rotation players? And then how do these other guys fit in? Like, I'm more optimistic on Ty Ty Washington than a few others. And that's why I'm, I became after this game even more concerned about the idea that Rafael Stone is going to try to invest in making this team a lot better next year, because I think they need so much more high-end talent than will even be available with their cap space. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Obviously, the results of their draft pick uh, will be a major part of, of all that. Um, as we look at the Rockets, uh, um, obviously without KPJ and Jalen Green, they're pretty unwatchable. You mentioned they're starting the three power forwards. And uh, the other thing to recall is that if they, the loss of Eric Gordon is actually very significant for this team. I and mean, he's a good player, but he's you know one of the few like real NBA quality players that they have right now. You know, I'm not sure really that there's anyone else that they have on this team who is would be anywhere close to a starter for a real team at this point in time. I mean, maybe that's Jay Sean Tate, but you know, he he needs other guys to play off of. Uh, and this is even with Porter Jr. and Jalen Green healthy. And this is a, a crazy stat, but the Rockets are two and 35 the last two years without Eric Gordon. <laughs> wow. So, I, I mean, that's like, it shows you how important he is to them just as like somebody who can shoot and defend a little bit. I mean, they just don't have any, like who are the two way players on this team who aren't woefully inexperienced at this point in time. They have no shooting. They don't have much defense. They don't have much pass. It just, it's crazy. Like how bad they're going to be. I think the rest of the season, unless Jalen Green and Kevin Porter just you know go crazy in a, in a given game. And, so even losing someone like him, yeah, they, they got to move up a little bit 
in the draft and it was good to let him go and stuff but they are gonna be so bad the rest of this year it's gonna be insane picking this back up now later on sunday evening and we will have the stats updated for these teams through sunday evening the earlier ones that we recorded earlier sunday those were not available of course uh, given our inability to see into the future with at least that level of specificity obviously we're quite prescient with our prediction but you know there are limits let's talk about this uh, minnesota golden state game that we were at and carl anthony towns obviously is out still for a while rudy gobert missed it with an illness torian prince also out for minnesota he's not on the trip and then of course for golden state andrew wiggins is continuing personal absence draymond green bang knees with jared vanderbilt in the lakers game this is now a second straight missed game there was an expectation he was going to play actually both of these games and apparently he had a setback now it's gonna have to be an mri for him hopefully this isn't something along the lines of a bone bruise it sounded like it was something where he bumped knees so you would think maybe that's more of a impact injury than something that could be ligament related or something like that but you know we've seen draymond had an injury last year that seemed like the, the calf issue that turned out to actually be a back issue he missed a bunch of time so warriors obviously without steph curry as well without the three best players they beat houston on friday and they managed somehow i don't really don't know how uh, to beat the minnesota timberwolves tonight let's start with the warriors here danny what are their fundamentals after their sunday victory the warriors are now 31 and 30 they are plus 0.7 in net rating cleaning the glass iteration 12th in offense 17th in defense and then in terms of the playoff projections it's like raptor has them at 43 and 39 which would be the seven seed in the west it's actually two games ahead of the pels and ooh the lakers and ooh the timberwolves all slated to be tied at 41 and 41 and i think they the warriors moved into seventh place they would have been like you know 97th place if they had lost this game because the standings are so bunched up so that's per raptor and then elo has golden state winning one fewer game 42 and 40 what'd you make of this one it definitely shifted a number of times uh, you, you brought up the the kind of latest scratches for Gobert and Draymond Green and that especially considering the Warriors have generally been poor defensively when Green and Andrew Wiggins are unavailable we definitely saw that in the early going as Minnesota went out to a big a big lead they were the final for final first quarter score was 34 25 but Nas Reed scored the most points of any Warriors opponent in a single quarter this year he had 18 in the first quarter on his way to a career high of 30 but I mean it looked like he was going to get a whole hell of a lot more than 30 at one point another thing that drove Minnesota's success they were seven of their first nine from three then got significantly colder there and so it looked like the Warriors aren't getting any stops they're very disjointed on offense really the only thing Golden State had going in the early part of the game offensively was they had this little run of forcing turnovers for Minnesota late in the first that kept them in the game but then Clay Thompson really took it to another level yeah Clay second straight huge game uh, he had 12 three-pointers 12 of 17 all of his made field goals in that game against houston were threes uh, to have 42 points he had 32 this time and really struggled early on but came on early in the third and then really was the guy who put the game away in the fourth finishing with 32 points 12 of 23 overall 6 of 14 for three hit a few ridiculous ones you can tell that clay is feeling it when he's more much more comfortable going left and shooting going left 
but when he's making the shots going right as well that's when you know he's feeling he had a ridiculous iso fadeaway on austin rivers late in the clock from the right corner that kissed in off the backboard somehow he had another fading three going to his right out of a i think it was a split cut action that was a huge shot in the fourth quarter and golden state i mean they looked like they were in trouble in this one after the wolves put a 30 to 19 third on him led by 10 and at the end of the third and then golden state came back wolves couldn't hit a three they finished three for 11 they had they started seven to nine then they were one of 11 then they made their first five three-pointers of the third quarter and then they finished out uh, three of 11 in that fourth quarter and golden state actually led by eight with a minute left before they almost kicked the game away i don't think we need to get into that too much other than oh but that, we could how ugly it was <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is it is very much in, in our tactical wheelhouse and an element of this game that especially when you have prominent players out is coaches finch and kerr trying to figure out which players i thought in some ways it was more even the players than the combinations and that was a, a huge storyline in this game patrick baldwin jr has gotten more consistent minutes i, li- I like a lot of what he's doing there uh, there are, are you bit- sure it's not steve novak jr there are times where he looks similar defensively. Baldwin Jr., I, I like the I like his jump shot. You know, it's something even going back to the limited amount I saw him in Team USA stuff going back then. And Moses Moody was briefly in the rotation, had a couple of defensive miscues, and then was subsequently out of the rotation. And so and then the other the players that we know that Steve Kerr trusts are Ty Jerome when Steph Curry is out. Jamichael Green, who made another three, he he had an all he had an all right game, had a couple of big offensive rebounds, and then Anthony Lamb and Lamb, his shooting has definitely fallen off of where it was earlier in the season, and it appears that Kerr and the coaching staff have more faith in him than they do in Moody, in Baldwin Jr. Um, and I you see some of the similar mistakes, like he overhelps more aggressively but he does he does kind of know what they want to do on offense and defense and trust isn't always an absolute it isn't always objective I understand why some in the fan base are very frustrated with Anthony Lamb they're also when the team is this not healthy there aren't as many options yeah and Lamb I I think he's worn down a little bit particularly defensively staying in front of guys but I thought he had good energy in this one he had uh, some key box outs in the fourth quarter just as you mentioned hasn't had the the shot he had a a couple of nice drives even where he's he's had moments doing that so uh, obviously not a guy that you ideally want in your playoff rotation but he is capable and he doesn't have any just glaring glaring weaknesses and Ty Jerome is another guy who plays team defense he's very under athletic but at least it can help run the team uh Dante DiVincenzo you know it's so funny with this Warriors team because they've had lots of guys who have had moments of playing well I mean I think Draymond has been very good this season Steph Curry when he's been available has been very you know at his usual level like Clay Thompson since the beginning of January when Steph went out the first time like he's really coming on Clay Thompson's now shooting 41 percent from three almost 12 threes for 36 minutes uh, you know, Kevon Looney, uh, I think is, hasn't been as impactful defensively of late, but he's had some good moments, uh, but Wiggins is the guy who really has not been anywhere close to the same guy all season defense. I mean, I think that's, you know, all these guys have had their moments, 
but you know a lot of that's been from a shooting perspective and maybe not as much defensively um but DiVincenzo was fantastic four of nine from three he's been very aggressive he had 21 points uh, in 38 minutes so this is a nice win for Golden State I, I think you know, obviously Minnesota had guys out but so Golden State had their ostensible what you would have said at least before the season are their three best players and they've been very reliant on Clay Thompson in, in this latest Steph Curry injury absence and he's he's delivered for two wins that they needed um anything else from the Warriors I guess we could talk about their defense a little bit they this was a better defensive game for them uh Anthony Edwards had a rough game we'll talk more about that in a second but I thought they were able to execute defensively they really were switching everything and it looked like Nas Reed was killing them more though with the the pick and pop and just shooting over smaller guys and then pump faking driving also Nas Reed runs the floor really hard they're getting out in transition the Wolves were a lot in a 34 point first quarter but Golden State really slowed them down pretty well after that held them to 104 for the game a fast-paced team and so their switching was pretty good and I was disappointed though that Anthony Edwards in theory and a great isolation player was not able to make much hay against that considering the players that were out for the Warriors you would have expected Edwards to to produce and he didn't even like really take a shot until the in, in the early going he didn't score until the late first yeah. quarter well, yeah they were doing so well Nas Reed had the 18 points like I don't know if that kind of contributed to him just like sitting back and then just not being that aggressive over the course of the game could be it, it's a it's a worthy theory of of what happened there and I mean this you know the Warriors in this it you know availability clay thompson was on edwards a fair amount late but they you know divincenzo pool looney isn't the greatest yeah. on those kinds Kamingo of Kamingo was probably the guy who guarded in the most warriors started yes uh pool divincenzo Kamingo, looney and clay uh in this one where the wolves countered with mike conley uh anthony edwards mcdaniels Kyle Anderson and Nas Reed uh so you know not a ton of shooting on the team other than Nas Reed who got up the 11 attempts um but yeah I mean Edwards maybe his worst game of the season 12 points 5 and 19 did have seven assists but five turnovers uh, as well and, and only took one free throw attempt Chris Finch lamented that after the game saying he's got one of the highest rim pressure rates in the league and I, I mean I didn't see any plays really where he got fouled like Chris Finch was saying well you know there's plays in a crowd where he's turning it over and like maybe the referees can't see it or something it was you know some of the typical laments uh i mean the bigger problem for the wolves was that they couldn't hit any of the free throws they generated they were 11 to 21 but yeah i mean i think edwards you just you didn't feel him in this game there weren't really any of those wow athletic plays that you come to expect from him you know a lot of people on the the wolves media were saying like he kind of looks worn down which is interesting to me given that they just came off the all-star break you'd think that he would hopefully have gotten a a win there so uh, it was too bad because i i haven't seen i actually you know just seeing him warming up before the game i I realized i had never actually like seen anthony edwards up close before he didn't see the hoop somebody was 2020 draft during covid and uh you know he definitely is a a big guy he shoots it really well in warm-ups like very impressive um what else we got here from the wolves standpoint before we get all the way into that let's do their stats yes after the game minnesota 31 and 32 on the season still positive net rating plus 0.3 they're currently 19 teams with a positive clean the glass net rating they are one of those 21 is their rank in offensive rating, 9 in defensive rating, which is pretty striking considering their personnel, though, of course, they do have Rudy Gobert most of the time, though not right now. And 
The 538 models, so we talked about how they're kind of right in this mix. Uh, Raptor has them at 41 wins, which is in this group. I believe that's a tie for 8, 9, and 10 right now in the West, but of course there are yep. a million teams that are close. Yeah, with the the Pels and the Lakers. And uh, yeah, I mean, even the, the Warriors are only projected to finish two games behind the Kings. Now, I'm not sure what they're projecting as far as the Warriors' health, either with Curry, uh, Wiggins, and Draymond, uh, but uh, that's, that's really pretty fast fascinating uh that again i mean it, whichever team can get hot you know even the suns are only projected for 45 wins right now you know we'll see how long it takes them to integrate kd uh you know king's got a got a big win which we'll talk about later the second highest scoring game in nba history uh against the clippers so this has been a damaging stretch though for the wolves uh, they lost at home to the hornets who actually have been friskier they beat miami too didn't they over the weekend i believe they did yeah yeah, yeah they've, been, they've definitely been friskier uh they lost to the wizards right before the break uh, and then uh, obviously losing this one granted without gobert but also with the uh, golden state missing uh, three of their four best players we should say uh really disappointing you know, i think they they if they were able to take two of those three they really could feel a lot better about their playoff positioning right now because we only got like 20 games left uh it's uh, it's amazing to think of um what else can oh, we talk about for the wolves performance here he only played a small amount in the game but it looked like things might swing in a stretch where I think Nasrid was in foul trouble and they weren't going to go back to Nathan Knight. So Luca Garza played a small stretch and got a bunch of offensive rebounds. The Warriors were playing very small at that time. I think Looney had already picked up his third foul. And yeah, Garza five of five from the foul line, rest of team six of 16. Oof. <laughs> and there were time I thought it was a rough game overall from Austin Rivers the you could argue the best thing he did was a phenomenal for what it was flop on Jordan Poole where Jordan Poole was roughly a quarter mile from Austin Reeves face and Austin Reeves acted like he got uh, it. Austin Rivers Austin, Austin, Austin Rivers. Reeves also gets hit in the face a lot yeah this was Austin Reeves also <laughs> had a memorable Sunday but um uh, that, yeah. uh, the, but um yeah so that was Austin Rivers he was two of Rivers was two of eight from the field two five from three Nikhil alexander walker someone that i've been fascinated by at times he I, I thought he kind of disappeared a little bit during this game had some push and transition and just just kind of fitting it together you know you'd love for minnesota to have another depth guard with some of the guys that they're missing at, at least the good thing is that they're finally playing him with the two right they're, they're with mclaughlin back uh, he's basically playing next to either mike conley or mclaughlin so I, I think that'll set him up better to succeed he was still pretty aggressive with 12 shots in 21 minutes uh, ending up at 4 or 12 wasn't really able to contribute much defense i mean i think you know rivers uh oh four from the line that was uh, definitely a killer for him uh he was a, a team worst negative 14 and you know poor austin rivers always ends up like just in these matchups against the Warriors where he's got to chase these guys around. Wolves weren't really doing much switching at all uh, with Clay Thompson. Who's Clay was even running more pick and roll, more isolation. Um, and it seemed like uh, Clay surprisingly actually was cooking Jaden McDaniels, which you would think Jaden McDaniels would be pretty good. But uh, Clay was able to beat him. He one memorable time. He just like faced him up with a triple threat from the left wing, blew by him going left and then forced help and kicked out to DiVincenzo for a three in the fourth quarter so rivers i i don't think he was playing bad defense on clay but he, clay was able to shoot over him and uh it, rivers just as a uh, suboptimal offensive option shall we say we didn't talk much about mike conley i thought there were times no. where his orchestration of the pick and roll worked I, th there were also times where they were just using that to set up nas reed who was so electric in that first quarter 
Conley, you know, he was reasonable defensively, took the shots. He had one big corner three where he was just wide open, took it, and that was one of the parts where it looked like the Wolves were going to run away with it. So I thought he was solid, but you do think that at times when the Wolves stagnate, which they definitely do, that Conley could be that stabilizing force. He wasn't quite that on Sunday. Yeah, he played 34 minutes, which is as much as he could reasonably play. Only took two two-point field goals. So he's had been struggling with that in Utah. I think he was 42% from two in Utah, but obviously still a very good three-point shooter. He was definitely orchestrating more in Utah than he was here. And I think he's still trying to kind of figure out what his role is going to be. You know, he has experience playing next to Donovan Mitchell, who I think is somewhat of a similar player in terms of uh, their ball handling role as Anthony Edwards. You know, I don't know that Mike Con- Conley is going to have the ball as much here in Minnesota as he did in Utah this season. Uh, But I think if there's a way that they could try to use Conley to set up Anthony Edwards, that'd be good. But Edwards just is not really that kind of an off-ball player. He's largely just going to be creating on the ball. And at least Conley can shoot when he's off the ball. You know, I do think that they should probably go with more of a stagger. And and obviously Conley also, I think a big part of why they brought him in is he has a good chemistry with Rudy Gobert. And they didn't really use Gobert as as a dive man uh, in this game because he wasn't there. So uh, I think you know, we'll see whether Conley can get integrated a little bit more. I do think he could give them a little more ball movement and offensive pace in the half court than uh, he was able to show tonight. Uh, another thing I thought was interesting, uh, they actually have been using Jaden McDaniels to dive to the rim a little bit more, even on like some quick post-ups. They lobbed a beautiful pass. Was I think it was from Conley uh, to him for an easy layup, or they're trying to have McDaniels set screens early in transition and dive to the rim, get, get on top of the basket. They didn't have a ton of success uh and you know I, I think it was interesting that finch went with austin rivers rather than uh either kyle anderson or mcdaniels at times down the end and nazarene as good as he was on the offensive end with that career high 30 did slow down after that 18 point first quarter and, and he's not a good defensive center i mean i think it's still worth noting that as well as he's gonna score he actually reminds me a lot danny of bobby portis uh i like a little that. more explosive um but just not a guy who's really a great rim protector doesn't really move his feet doesn't have great defensive instincts so you know there are a few times when reed was just laying too far back in the pick and roll and like uh, clay thompson would just shoot right over him for example so but i think just that kind of archetype of like third big can shoot doesn't really defend very well at either big position so maybe kind of more of a third big but if you have another good defensive big next to him maybe it can work yeah, that's that's kind of I mean I think he's a little more centery than Portis is and also just a, a better finisher overall but that's like that's kind of the archetype of like that backup big who's an offensive player you probably don't want him starting due to his defense and so there's a lot of talk that he's gonna get paid there's been talk of, of an extension there with him and it seemed like well hey they already have two centers they're gonna stagger them like what is his role gonna be well obviously with all the injuries he, he's played plenty and uh, Chris Finch complimented him on staying ready and being able to produce for them he also had five steals <laughs> there were a lot of deflections and weird passes in this game i will credit for the warriors jordan pool for gutting it out he sprained an ankle in the first half but finished five of 20 one of eight from three and, and that's been an underrated story of his season i thought he actually looked good attacking in pick and roll crossing over splitting the double team again against the bad pick and roll defense uh, of reed so he was able to get it in the lane some but ultimately i mean he just really struggled to shoot the ball and 
his three-pointer just has not gone down at the same rate that it did last year he's been in the low 30s and I mean I would say his attempts are a little bit harder both with all the bench minutes he's been playing and then having to play a lot without stuff but I mean I think ultimately the Warriors problem this season has not necessarily been that Steph Curry hasn't been available like they're 11 and 12 without Steph Curry like that's far better than you could have hoped probably they're also as as you would guess with the record they're roughly 500 when Curry's been available too precisely yeah and and I I looked at it today net rating with Clay Draymond and Steph on the floor still is a plus eight like the Warriors have had just a lot of disjointed sections a lot of injuries there's always been some excuse and I like this is why I still have some hope for them I think maybe they don't even have as much hope potentially now with Gary Payton being out and but I think if they can get healthy like I they there still is a team in here uh and particularly if they can get Gary Payton the second back as well and up their defense like I certainly they could be a very very dangerous offensive team uh, and if they can just get enough defense with Draymond and Looney and Wiggins those three guys all back playing well like they, they could still be dangerous it's just you wonder like like it's still with if they can play well it's still within their reach but it seems and particularly with Dallas struggling a little bit now uh with the Luka and Kyrie combo we thought maybe they would take off like there isn't other than the Suns there isn't necessarily this team ahead of them that you think is going to go run and hide so maybe if Steph can come back in 10 days or so and they could they could go on a run and I mean as long as they get above the play and you still uh, have to think that they've got a fighting champ uh anything else Wolves related we need to talk about here I think that's everything all right well that will do it for today we've put in uh, about two hours of recording time here we still got to get to that Clippers Kings classic from Friday and also wanted to talk Lakers and Dallas that was a, another huge comeback Dallas blows another huge lead biggest comeback for the Lakers since again that I actually remember watching back in 2003 against the Mavs when the Lakers came back from 30 down they came back from 27 down in this one so we'll talk about that and of course we still have to get to the Suns and the Blazers Damian Lillard put up 71 Whew. tonight uh, I haven't had a chance to watch all the film on that so we got a lot coming tomorrow we got to get to our awards this week we got to start doing position rankings I have a bunch of Watfos post-trade deadline that I want to throw out there as well. So we got a busy week coming up here on Dunked on Prime. If you're not a subscriber yet, please consider joining up and we will talk to y'all very soon. Till then.